And we've had four years of everyone telling us we can't do it, we're crazy. So the most important thing is that a founder identifies a problem that they're so obsessed with solving that they're willing to do anything to solve it. Have you ever wondered, how do you grow a conscious e-commerce brand online while also making a profit? Yeah, me too. After watching my family members suffer through cancer and heart disease using products by companies that care more about profits than their customers, there must be a better way, right? That's when I discovered an emerging wave of successful, purpose-driven businesses, and I knew I needed to be a part of it. So join me as we dive into the stories behind the most inspiring brands in the world and discover the secrets on how they successfully win over the vote of their customers' wallets and grow their business online. My name is Vincent Tanyono and welcome to the Conscious E-Commerce Leaders Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Conscious E-Commerce Leaders Podcast. I'm super excited to be joined here by Trish Thomas. She's the co-founder and chief eating officer of Everybody Eat. Now, Trish is a serial entrepreneur, problem solver, and she has founded uh, multiple companies. And she sold her first company four years after college, and she built the first safe online community for kids, and she scaled a media company to distribution in 100 countries and 65 languages. And she has also consulted with some of the biggest companies in the world on content and digital strategy. And she's also currently teaching entrepreneurship at Northwestern University. So after going through some health challenges herself, she uses her entrepreneurial and problem-solving skills to start the Everybody Eat. And uh, what they do is they make clean, delicious snacks that anybody uh, can enjoy and what, and also to share with the people they love, like their family and, and things like that. So that's super awesome what you're doing. So glad to be here uh, to join us here, Trish. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Vincent. Uh, is there anything else that I missed out in the intro that you'd like to add? No, you make, you make me sound really busy, but we can leave out the six boys and three dogs running around my house too. Oh, yeah, that's, that's amazing. So if I'm not mistaken, uh, you studied architecture and design, right, when you were in school. Like how, how did you actually get into entrepreneurship? Can you get, uh, give us the backstory on that? So um, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, and our family actually has been in the design and architecture business for 165 years. It's the oldest design firm in America. Wow. And so I grew up working there, right? I worked for my uncle. I did carpets in the sample room and I'm surrounded. I grew up in a culture of entrepreneurs. My uncle Tom's a plumber. Other people had different businesses. So I think that entrepreneurship was built into my DNA. But when I started college, I just thought I was going to go into the family business and then ended up coming to Chicago for my first internship during college and worked for a design firm called Eva Maddox Associates that was another female entrepreneur who ended up being my first job out of college. So, so I never studied entrepreneurship. I actually don't even think you could study it then. Um, I've only taken two business classes in my life, even though I've taught a few of them these days. But, but I, it wasn't about um, 
becoming an entrepreneur, I just learned how to solve problems. And a design education was great for that because a lot of business education teaches you how to think linearly, right? Mm -hmm. And when you're studying design, you have to look at a problem from 360 degrees, right? You're building a building. You have to think through the doors, the windows, the walls, the plumbing, the electrical. So it's one of the best ways to learn systems and strategic thinking I've ever come across. How did you like start your, your first business? Like you sold the company like four years after graduating. So you must have started like sometime in college. Is that right? Uh, I, I officially started, I think a year to the day I graduated from college. So ah, okay. I was working for Eva Maddox Associates. And at the time they were one of the few people doing branded environments in the States, meaning that they would not just create architecture. They would come in, they would do graphics, they would do branding. Um, websites didn't exist yet, but today they would be the people doing websites, marketing materials. And we were cultivating a pretty big business with non-for-profits like museums. And so I'd sit in those meetings and, and my job was business development because I, I could sell and I could think and see design in my head. And I'd sit in these meetings with museums and other non-profits. And I thought these guys if they build these great looking retail stores, they, they still need something to sell. They need something that's their product to develop intellectual property that then they could go license to other museums. So not having a clue what I was doing, um, I went down to working three days a week at Eva Maddox Associates, got a bunch of concrete blocks, put a piece of wood on them, this little, like little old fashioned um, Apple Macintosh computer, I decided I was going to start my own company doing product development for nonprofits. So uh, I believe on that first day, I sat down at my desk made out of concrete blocks and wood and opened the computer and had no idea what I was supposed to do. So I just turned on the television and watched Oprah. That was day one. But, uh, but what I, what I didn't know was that it takes nonprofits a really long time to make decisions or it did then. And so one of the biggest museums here in Chicago had a, a, a collection that I was really inspired about and saw how they could do a line of toys, but they, they weren't moving fast enough. And so we just started developing these toys anyhow. And the funny part is, is that that particular museum called me years later and said, well, we're ready to go. And I said, well, um, I'm sorry, but I, I, I don't do that anymore. I, I spun off a toy company and we just sold it and I work for them. So that was, that was my first foray into intellectual property development that um, at the time, only in the United States, really only the um, Metropolitan Museum of Fine Art and one of the art museums in Boston was really looking at doing licensable intellectual property. Wow. Yeah. So I can see that like the businesses that you start, they're all like very, very different, right? The yes. Uh, cause in each one of them, I probably can look back and go, what the heck was I thinking? <laughs> like, yeah. Toy business was all about sales per square inch. Um, well, I've never, I've never, um, been an idea person. I've always been a problem solving person. Mm -hmm. Right. And so even when I started teaching entrepreneurship first at Lake Forest college, and now where I was their director of entrepreneurship for several years and now at Northwestern, I, I looked for the right definition of entrepreneurship and most of the published definitions of entrepreneurship talk about finance or risk. And, and I don't think that's the right way to define what we do, right? Entrepreneurs and innovators 
identify problems worth solving and mobilize the people, resources, and networks to solve them. And when you, when you look at it through the lens of, as an entrepreneur, what do you need to learn how to do? You can hire other people to do accountant, accounting. You can hire people like you, Vincent, to do marketing and email right. marketing. I've seen your work. It's amazing. But, but what, it, what an entrepreneur uniquely does is mobilize people, resources, and networks to solve those problems. And that's very different than being a management consultant that's studying data and everything else, right? Like, like what we do is entrepreneurs need to learn how to fearlessly ask, have difficult conversations, manage through adversity, reframe failure in real time, and build stakeholder networks of support. And that was actually how I got into teaching is that when I, when I looked at the top 20 reasons that early stage ventures fail and compared them to a whole bunch of research I'd just done on psychological resilience because of a, a, a tragic actually death in our family, um, I was like, wait a minute, this is all entrepreneurship, only nobody teaches us how to do these things. So, so my academic work is actually... Um, We've developed curriculum to boost the psychological resilience of entrepreneurs around those things, fearless asking, managing difficult conversations, dealing with adversity and reframing failure and stakeholder networks of support. Because at the end of the day, those are the skills that you need to mobilize people, resources and networks. Yeah, I, I love what you mentioned there about like entrepreneurs that we are here to solve problems, right? And what I also love is that you're not just teaching like theory, you're actually like on the ground uh, doing your with experience and also like doing the real thing. So um, I'm very interested with the concept that you've uh, developed there, which is called uh, product market stick. So I, I know that I've heard of product market fit. So can you give me like the, an overview of what product market stick is all about? Yeah, it was really funny to go back as an entrepreneur to try to teach entrepreneur. I had mm -hmm. imposters, imposter syndrome. So I like studied it, right? Like academic, you know, you can see there's hundreds of books behind me. I read them all. But, but when you look at the field of entrepreneurship, it's a pretty new field. So Steve Blank wrote the book, The Startup Owner's Manual in like 2012, so that was one of the first real textbooks and, and where his model looks at the customer development process, which is starting with customer discovery, then customer validation, then customer creation, then company building. You also have some of the work that's been done around value proposition design, um, which is first you have problems, product solution fit, then product market fit. And it, and based on my experience when I was studying this, I'm like, we're missing a few things, right? So first you have problem founder fit that your whole basis rests on has the problem, has the founder found a problem that they're so obsessed with solving that they can't let it drop, right? So, yeah. so on, um, on our business, we've been working on it for four years and we've had four years of everyone telling us we can't do it, we're crazy. So the most important thing is that a founder identifies a problem that they're so obsessed with solving that they're willing to do anything to solve it. And then from there, you look at product solution fit, where you're looking at, um, do other people have that problem, right? How big is the market? How big is the problem? Going in and studying 
you know, pain points, jobs to be done, the game creators there. And then, then you go into customer validation and products market fit. Can you create can you create a prototype? Can you find a way to test the service that you want to offer? Can you validate that what you've created does solve that problem? And then from there and only there, do you get into customer creation? Can you actually make something and sell it to somebody else? And that's where business model fit comes in, right? Which is, you know, do you have supply chain? Do you have production? Do you have marketing? Do you have distribution? Can you get access to the capital you need? Can you get anybody to work with you to help you do it, right? Yeah. And But but even after you get to product market fit and business model fit, you can still be beat. Somebody mm-hmm. can still beat you. And, and my research and my own experiences is that product market stick is the missing piece. Because how you know you have something and when your product sticks is when your customers and your distributors and everyone else is starting to do the selling for you, right? That you've, mm-hmm. you've developed love and loyalty and trust um, and added value to lives so that people are evangelizing your brand. I also think that um, the other places that you can measure it and measure the impact. So, so in our business, we started with a problem. I was diagnosed with multiple autoimmune diseases right after I had my kids. I had my kids late in life, in my 40s. And, and I was on $2,000 a year in medicine and I felt terrible and I had low energy and I've always had high energy. And I thought there's got to be a better way. And I met with lots of doctors and, and one of them, Dr. Gia Maker-Clark here in Chicago, suggested that I start eliminating certain foods from my diet. And lo and behold, as I, as I took them out, and this is different for everybody. So just because this worked with my body's chemistry doesn't mean it would work with someone else's. But as I took gluten out, I took dairy out, corn, soy, and egg, um, I felt better. I lost weight. I actually have been off medicine for six years. And um, life was good, except there was nothing to eat. <laughs> and I could no longer... Yeah eat the same food as my family. We, I have two sons and I have four stepsons and those guys eat, right? So all of a sudden it went from having to create two meals where I'd start to stop eating dinner with them all together. I'd just feed them and hang out. And I didn't even realize um, how bad it became. And along the way, I met Nicole Wilson, who's my co-founder, who is a former executive at Pepsi. And I actually wasn't planning to start another business again. I was just coaching entrepreneurs, having fun. And, um, and Nicole really wanted to learn how to run a company. And so we had an infamous three hour conversation where I try to talk her out of it. I'm like, no, you don't. Your life goes crazy. Everything goes crazy. Like you can't see your friends. It's like, and at the end she said, yes, I do. And I said, all right, look, I'm never doing this again, but there's nothing to eat. And that was literally how we started. So then we did the research, um, to see how big the problem was and who else solved it or, and what was out there. And initially we wanted to start out as a technology platform where we were just going to curate healthy food made from whole ingredients that tasted good. Because most of the free from food that was out there at the time either tasted terrible um, and people wouldn't eat it unless they absolutely had to, or it was made from sort of Franken food ingredients. But what we found out in our initial research is there wasn't enough food to put on the platform to do it. So we realized Mm -hmm. we had to solve the food. 
Um, so we, we actually tried to start out by going to one of the world's largest food companies and doing a joint venture with them where we asked them for $20 million. We didn't get it. Um, but we met with a whole bunch of innovation teams and the people kept quitting. And in the end, we ended up really high in their research and development department. And they said, we don't think you can do it. It's too hard. You won't be able to make food that tastes good without those ingredients in them. Um, we said, thank you very much. And then we spent 2018 developing food products. So we've actually developed over 30 food products. Then we had to figure out how to make them. Uh, and then in 2019, everyone said, you won't be able to make them. Um, and they were right. So we couldn't find a contract manufacturer that was free of the top 14 allergens in corn in the U.S. So we built our own facility here in Evanston. I live just south of Northwestern University, north of Chicago. Um, and then as 2020 rolled around, we were the geniuses that were ready to start a business in March of 2020. Um, that would include selling our products as well as opening a little retail shop to sell them locally here. So on March 1st, 2020, we started. On March 13th, 2020, we shut down with COVID. Mm -hmm. And then we were able to reopen again on May 1st. And today, um, our everybody snack thins are in 670 stores. Um, and we just launched our second product last Friday, which are grain-free crisp breads. And they're available online at everybodyeating.com. But, but the behavior change we're going for, going back to product market stit, and how I know Will made it was when I can walk into a party and I can eat. And the real thing that we're trying to do is to change people's thinking, right? That we wouldn't probably invite a friend who has who's visually impaired to the movies. And we, we probably wouldn't invite a, a friend that is hearing impaired to go to a concert but yet we'll frequently entertain and invite people over and serve them food that they can't eat. So to me, when people start to consciously think, hey, I, I'm, I'm preparing this food, can everybody eat it? And that there's good food choice out, choices out there that make it easy so that everybody can eat. That, that's how we win, but that's what we're chasing. Mm -hmm. so, so to uh, clarify, to, to, I mean, to help me to understand is, so you know the product market stick is like by asking the customers, is that right? Or by observing what they do? It's observing what they do. Are they starting to do the selling for you, right? We're looking at how oh, to build okay. a technology tool to measure it. So, so how many posts on Instagram, how many personal referrals by friends? And you can start to see it. We're seeing it. So our repeat customers online, out of our repeat customers, pretty much steady for the past six months, we're seeing 75% or more are now buying three times or more, right? So, so that's when you know something sticky is that you're not selling it to them once, then you look at how many people come again, but how many people keep coming, right? How many people are subscribing? And we're starting to see some of the same behaviors on amazon.com, but, but we don't have access to all that data. But what I don't know, and I haven't found a way to measure, is if somebody buys from us online or they also buy from us at the grocery store, or they also buy it at the coffee shop, yeah. you know, that's when you can really win is if you created omni-channel loyalty. Do you encourage them to like create those um, reviews or, or a lot of brands, they do user-generated uh, content? Do you encourage them or do they share it on their own? 
Um, well, up until now, every single thing we've done has been completely organic. Like last year, mm. we were just trying to survive the pandemic. We were in the middle of a capital raise when it hit. So we just stuck up our website and it wasn't pretty and just let it go. Right. And, um, and so now we're starting to look at doing search engine marketing and, and, um, getting more aggressive with email, but everything that's happened today has been pretty much word of mouth. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. So, uh, where do you see like everybody eat in maybe in one to two years time? Well, our goal is to create an entire portfolio of products. So when you go in the grocery store, um, people that have special diets can, can see the brand and say, oh, I can eat that. I mean, one of the product innovations that we did is that when you pick up our packaging, all the ingredients are on the front, right? And, and, um, what we know through other people's research is that people that have food allergies spend the equivalent of a year of their life reading labels, right? A year of their life. They have to stand there, turn over the package, read the ingredients, yeah. make sure there's nothing in there, see how it's manufactured. So um, once we get to the place where we have a whole bunch of things that you can buy, hopefully we can give them their life back and they can stop reading labels. But, but I think it would also be success to me is can you, can you find us everywhere? Because some places where the pain points are the biggest are in airports, hospitals, schools, restaurants. So it, it's not so much as it, it's, it's about the food, but it's also about solving the problem until it's easier for everybody to eat everywhere. We haven't done our job. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing vision that that you uh, that you have, and I totally believe like in health, and everybody needs to take care of their health with good nutrition, right? So uh, this is one question that I like to ask my guest: uh, is what is like the best advice that you have ever received? The best advice I ever received is from my godfather Rick Riley, who's also an entrepreneur. Um, he said go through life headed in one direction, but keep your blinders on, like open, like the kind they have at the horse, because the real opportunities are going to come at you from the side. And that's what I've always seen. You know, you're, you're headed in one direction, you're working hard, and then all of a sudden, a person, an opportunity, a problem presents itself. And if you're so focused in the direction you're going, you might miss it. Mm. But that's, that's a bit of a fine line, isn't it? Like you want to stay focused, but you still want to be open to opportunities so like how do you like where do you draw well, the line for example i was coaching entrepreneurs and teaching and perfectly happy and met nicole and was trying to eat at the same time and uh, if i wasn't open to where life was going to take me we would never be doing what we're doing today ah uh, yeah okay that, that that makes sense yeah so before we wrap this up is there anything else that you'd like to share that uh, maybe i didn't ask no, I, uh, I think that one of the things, particularly, you know, where you are in the world is that what we uncovered is that food allergies and autoimmune disease are a huge problem globally. Only mm -hmm. not everybody's aware of them. So 20% yeah. um, of the world is suspected to have autoimmune disease, but out of that 80% of those people are women. I think because we have two X chromosomes and food allergies are a global problem as well. So, so the problem that we're trying to solve isn't, isn't unique to the U.S. When you look at um, 
food allergies, every country treats it a little bit differently and has a different number of allergens. But, but my hope would be is that there are food companies in every country in the world before we can get there that are trying to make it easier for the people in their country that have dietary issues to eat because they, they may not be aware they exist. Yeah, that's excellent advice. So for people that want to check out uh, Everybody Eat and perhaps also buy some uh, delicious, healthy snacks, uh, how do they do that? Um, everybodyeating.com. All right, nice and simple. I believe you're also on Amazon, on in stores as well, right? And uh, also on your website, right? Yes, we're on Amazon and we're in stores mostly in the Midwest, in the U.S. right now. Okay, awesome. Yeah, so make sure uh, go and grab your snacks at everybodyeating.com. And thank you so much, uh, Trish, for sharing all your golden nuggets and have a wonderful day. Thank you, Vincent. Take care.